Uh, well, friends, uh, when my son Levi was going through his dinosaur obsession phase, uh, he told me something that um, I just could not believe. He said, Dad, did you know that the Brontosaurus never really existed? Uh, did anyone know that? No? A few people. Um, you know the giant dinosaur with the tiny head and, and the long swishing tail? Uh, apparently it never really existed. Uh, what happened, um, my, my son told me, was that there was a bitter rivalry between two paleontologists uh, who were each trying to outdo one another by finding the most number of dinosaurs. Uh, But the story goes that one of them came across the skeleton of this huge dinosaur, but the skeleton was missing a head. And so what, what he did was he took the head of another dinosaur, stuck it on this dinosaur, and then I published the paper that said he'd found a new dinosaur called the Brontosaurus. Uh, Now, the astonishing thing about this is that even though the fraud was discovered in 1903, the Brontosaurus actually lived on in people's imaginations for a long, long time. Uh, You know, it was in the Flintstones, I think, uh, and in cartoons and and taught in schools. Uh, People thought that it was real, Uh, even though it never really existed. Uh, And friends, I I wonder whether our view of Jesus can sometimes be a little bit like that. Uh, You know, we kind of add bits to Jesus uh, to come up with our own version of Jesus, which bears no resemblance to the real Jesus. Uh, Often the Jesus that we come up with is a Jesus of convenience, a Jesus who never makes any demands of us, a Jesus who never asks us to change or make sacrifices in our Christian lives. Is that true for you, as it is of me at times? Uh, Now, we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew for a while, and uh, I want to suggest to you that chapter 3 is really all about the demand for change. Uh, Notice in verse 1, we are introduced to John the Baptist, and in verse 2, his message is is this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, In the very next chapter, we will see that this is exactly the same message that Jesus comes proclaiming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so uh, we're going to spend the next uh, 30 minutes or so uh, trying to understand uh, what uh, John uh, and uh, later on Jesus means by this particular message. Uh, But who was John? Uh, Who was John? Well, it seems that John was well known in Matthew's day in association with baptism, Uh, That's why, if you have a look at verse 1, he is referred to as John the Baptist. But the striking thing here, I think, is the emphasis not on his baptism, but on his preaching ministry. Uh, Notice in verse 1 that he comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, In verse 2, he is described simply as the voice. Uh, Whatever the significance of baptism, it seems like the preaching of John 
and his message to repent in the light of the kingdom of heaven is the really important thing that Matthew wants us to grasp here. But why does he preach this message? Uh, well, he preaches He preaches in order to prepare the way for the one who is coming after him. And uh, I think you can see this in two ways in this passage. Uh, firstly, you'll see there in verse 3 that Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 uh, that we uh, just read uh, a, a moment ago. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 3 if you have your Bibles there. Uh, verse 3 says, For this, uh, that is John, is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the, de- in the, wil- in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, if you've read the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, you know that chapter 40 is actually a huge turning point uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, for 40 whole chapters, Isaiah has been speaking about uh, judgment uh, for the city of Jerusalem because of their sinfulness. Uh, it's quite a depressing book for the first 40 chapters. And yet in chapter 40, Isaiah suddenly switches tone. He says that a voice will appear in the desert and this voice will prepare the way of the Lord, of, of Yahweh himself, who will come to comfort his people. Uh, secondly, uh, you can see that John prepares the way for the one who is coming after him in the strange description we get of his wardrobe and his lunchbox. Uh, in verse 4, you can see there that John wears a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Uh, further, we are told that his lunchbox consists of locusts and wild honey, as we saw in the kids' talk. Uh, clearly, John wasn't a person who was used to, you know, fine dining. In the, uh, he was somebody who dined in the wilderness, in the desert. Now, uh, I wonder whether that kind of conjures up anyone that you know of in the Old Testament. Uh, who in the Old Testament uh, went around in the desert wearing hairy clothing and a leather belt. Um, can somebody tell me who that is? The person who went around in the, in the desert wearing hairy clothing and a leather belt. Is that, was that a hand up, Bruce? Yep. Um, I'm not actually sure whether Moses uh, wore hairy clothing. Uh, he may have, but uh, he, he's not the, the one that I'm thinking of. Um, Elijah. Uh, Elijah was a great prophet. Uh, you can read about him in uh, uh, the book of 1 Kings. And uh, was a hairy man uh, who wore a leather belt and uh, who uh, spoke God's word uh, in the desert. But the important thing about this is that at the close of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi prophesies that Elijah will one day come again to prepare the way for God himself to come to his people. 
Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn back with me to uh, Malachi. Malachi is just the book before Matthew. Uh, and just at the end of Malachi, you probably need to go back just a few pages. Um, have a look at chapter 4 of Malachi, um, verse 5. This is how the Old Testament closes. Uh, chapter 4, verse 5 of Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, friends, the reason why John the Baptist is important is not because he himself is important, but because he paves the way for God himself to come. And when God comes, he comes to both save as well as to destroy. He will save those who are responding to him rightly, and he will destroy those who are not. Uh, You know, it's a bit like going to a concert. Um, Imagine you go to uh, the concert of of a famous star, Uh, You know, maybe someone like Taylor Swift, uh, if you have a teenage daughter. Uh, What usually happens is that before uh, a major concert, uh, you have a warm-up act, don't you? Uh, You have a relatively unknown uh, uh, person who comes up on the stage, and uh, the only function of that warm-up act is to prepare you for the main act that is to come. Is that right? Uh, John the Baptist functions a little bit like that. The main attraction is coming, and so you better be ready. Uh, That's the role of of John the Baptist, to prepare the way for God himself to come in the person of Jesus, the king of the kingdom of heaven uh, who uh, will rule forever and overtake every other kingdom in this world is coming. And when he comes, he will save those who are responding to him rightly, and he will destroy those who do not. And so, friends, are you ready to meet this king? How do you get ready to meet Jesus? Well, the appropriate way to get ready, says John, is to repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, it means to return to God. If you know the history of the people of Israel, uh, they were a a people who had wandered away from God again and again. They turned their back on God and rebelled against him. They ignored his word and did not live like his people. And they suffered the awful judgment of God in the exile to Babylon. Israel must have wondered whether God had abandoned them completely. For hundreds of years... God's voice was not heard through the voice of a prophet. But here, can you see that John suddenly appears as a voice? The voice from God, pleading with the people to return once again to God before it is too late. Notice that uh, the repentance that John is calling for here is not just about turning away from specific sins. Uh, Yes, repentance does mean turning away from sin, 
which is why you see in verse 6 the people confessing their sins as they are baptized by John. The repentance that John is calling for here is the turning of the whole person towards God rather than running away from him. It is about a, a whole new direction in life that is Godward rather than away from God and serving myself and my sinful nature. But here's the thing, friends. God is not fooled by the unrepentant. God is not fooled by the unrepentant. And you can see this in the incredibly strong words that John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of the, of the day. Uh, you can see it there in verse 7, can't you? Have a look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, it's not one of those warm and fuzzy kind of passages, is it? Um, you don't, it's not a very friendly thing to call someone uh, a viper or a brood of vipers or, or, or snakes. Uh, I think it's actually quite a shocking thing to say because uh, although Pharisees and Sadducees get a lot of bad press uh, these days, uh, they were actually the morally upright and religious people of the day, not unlike many of us. But the thing to see here is that presumption kills repentance. I'll say that again. Presumption kills repentance. You see, these religious leaders presumed that just because they were descendants of Abraham, uh, that they were part of the people of God. They thought they would be safe from God's judgment. And yet, even though externally they looked religious and morally outright, uh, upright, well, they were not genuinely repentant. There was no fruit in their lives that suggested that they had wholeheartedly turned back to God. They did not listen to him. They did no more than the bare minimum when it came to serving God and others. And there was no genuine change in their lives. Uh, a little while back, uh, I visited a friend of mine who uh, has some mandarin trees uh, planted in his uh, front yard. Uh, now, I've never in my life grown any kind of plant material, but uh, my guess is that if you have a fruit tree, it is reasonable to expect some fruit. Is that right? Uh, in fact, this friend of mine gave me a huge bag of mandarins which were sweet and delicious and wonderful. But imagine you plant a mandarin tree and year after year after year it produces little to no fruit. 
what would you conclude about a tree like that? Well, after a, a while, you would have to conclude that either it is not a mandarin tree or that it is dead, wouldn't you? And that's what John is saying here to the religious leaders. No fruit equals no repentance. No repentance equals spiritual death. And if the tree continues to bear no fruit, then it will be cut down and thrown into the fire of hell, into God's judgment, says John the Baptist. Strong words. And so, friends, I want to ask us this morning, are you and I bearing fruit in our lives? Uh, When I tally up all the different things that constitute my life, the way I speak to people, the way I treat people, my thoughts, my character, my decisions about my work, my decisions about where I choose to live, how I use my money, how I raise my children, how I, the, the, the sorts of things that I pursue in this life, will it show fruit that is evidence of a heart that is turned towards God? Now, brothers and sisters, I know that there are many of you who consistently bear the fruit of repentance in your lives. Uh, It's very evident in the way that you relate to others and the sorts of decisions you make and the way you make the gospel a priority that you have turned your whole life towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also know that there are some of us who have been coming to church year after year after year who have produced very little fruit. There is the outward appearance of religion and yet there has been very little change. And if that's you, then be warned. John says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God says, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to wholeheartedly turn to him, to turn away from sin and to turn to God and to produce fruit in keeping with repentance before it is too late. Now, will you do that this morning? Will you do that before it is too late? But friends, how is genuine repentance possible? Well, the good news in this passage is that it is possible because of the mighty one who comes to baptise with the Holy Spirit. It is possible because of the mighty one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Let's pick it up from verse 11, if you have your Bibles there. Uh, After rebuking the religious leaders, John says, uh, I baptise you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, John's baptism could never produce genuine repentance. Uh, It was an external symbol, but it could never produce an internal change of heart towards God. Uh, It's a bit like Christian baptism, isn't it? Hands up those of us who have been sprinkled with water uh, or uh, sort of dunked uh, in a pool of water. Uh, Many of us have been baptised. But, uh, you know, there's nothing magical about the water that we were dunked in that produces genuine change in us, is there? It's just a symbol. If water alone could produce uh, a genuine change of heart, uh, what we should be doing is uh, taking a hose and going out to Parramatta Road and spraying people as they uh, drive past in their cars. That's how we uh, would do the work of evangelism, isn't it? That in and of itself cannot produce change. And what does John say? Well, he says that the one who comes after him is the one who is mightier than he is. He can do what John can't. He can produce genuine repentance because when he comes, he will baptise not in the symbolic sense with a bit of water, but he will baptise with the Holy Spirit. He will give you a new heart that is turned towards God. He will purify you from the inside as fire purifies gold. And it is those who are genuinely repentant that he will save from the fire of hell. And friends, I want to say that that is incredibly good news, don't you think? For if you are anything like me, uh, you will know how difficult change can be. Is that true for you? Uh, Often this is what happens. Uh, You realise that you need to repent of a particular sin. And so what do you do? Well, you resolve to exert a little bit more moral effort in your life. You think to yourself, if I just try a little bit harder this week, then I will not fall to the same sin. Uh, It's actually a form of pride, I think, to think that if I just try a little bit harder, I will be able to defeat sin in my life. But what happens? Well, you find that we fail again and again and again. Uh, Perhaps you are here this morning and you have failed so much in a particular area that you despair of ever changing. But friends, I want to say that this passage is incredibly good news for those who want to change. For it says that change will not ultimately come from you, it will come because of the mighty one who will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It is this spirit who will change us and purify us and give us a new heart that turns to God. And so the way to change is not to keep on looking at our sin and wallowing in our sin, but to look to the mighty one and to see in him the one who is able to help us to change. 
And uh, that's what the final bit of our passage is all about. Uh, It's about the identity of Jesus. Uh, You might have noticed that up until this point, Jesus has not made an appearance. John has been uh, the main uh, person uh, who has been preparing the way for him. But suddenly, in verse 13, Jesus bursts onto the scene, and the first thing he does is he asks John the Baptist to baptise him. Uh, Now, you might be wondering to yourself, why on earth does Jesus ask John to baptise him? After all, if Jesus is sinless, then what does he have to repent of? Well, if you are wondering this, then uh, you're in pretty good company, because in verse 14, uh, John is just as perplexed as you are. Uh, He says to Jesus, I need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? But friends, I think that the key to understanding why Jesus gets baptised is in the little word, us. In verse 15, where Jesus says to John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Now, the reason why I think the word us is important there is because Jesus is saying to John that what they are about to do together in this baptism will fulfil Old Testament expectations. In particular, it will fulfil the expectation of the coming of God's Messiah. And sure enough, as Jesus is baptised, God himself confirms that this is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. He confirms the identity of Jesus. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are ripped open. Jesus sees the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, which is the fulfilment of an Old Testament expectation that when the Messiah comes, the Holy Spirit would rest upon him. And then a voice comes. This time, not the voice of John the Baptist, but the voice of God himself, who says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This one is my beloved Son, and I am pleased with him. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven, which has broken into this world. He is the mighty one, who later, after dying for sins, will rise again. And seated in heaven, he is going to be the one who pours out his spirit, see forgiveness of sins and a new life, to be purified by his spirit. And so how have you responded to this Jesus? Have you turned wholeheartedly to him? Let me finish up. Um, A few weeks ago, I I visited a nursing home and met an old lady. Uh, She was a very nice lady, and uh, it turns out that she had gone to a a local church uh, for all her life before she ended up in a nursing home. But it was a profoundly sad visit because of the conversation I had with her. Uh, She said she was a Christian person, and so uh, I asked her, how how did you become a Christian? 
And she said, my parents were Christian. I said, uh, yes, but how did you become a Christian? And she said, I was baptised in an Anglican church. I said, well, that, that's great, but has there ever been a time when you've turned to Jesus as your Messiah, as your King, as your Saviour? And she said, but I, I taught Sunday school for all my life. It was a profoundly sad conversation because as we kept on talking, it became evident that although she had been religious all her life, she had not turned wholeheartedly to Jesus. She presumed that just because she was born into a Christian family, just because she was baptised in an Anglican church, just because she had taught Sunday school and youth group, well, she had no need for repentance in her life. She had no need to genuinely turn the direction of her life towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, how have you responded to Jesus? Have you turned to him in genuine repentance so that your heart is turned towards him? Or are you merely outwardly religious, thinking that just coming to church is enough? bearing little fruit in keeping with repentance. What God says in this passage is a warning of judgment to the unrepentant. But it is also good news because there is hope of change. For Jesus is the mighty one who baptizes us with his Holy Spirit, who can change us and purify us by his Spirit. And so look to him. Turn to him with your whole heart. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray.